Do you enjoy reading ghost stories alone at night? Have you ever binged an entire true crime series? Or do you ever unwind by watching horror films like The Exorcist or reading the supernatural novels of Stephen King? This is the Dublin Gothic Podcast, a series investigating the intersection between art, psychology, folklore, architecture, natural history, and Ireland's urban Gothic writing. In this first episode, we explore the spectrum of emotions that can be evoked by horror films and stories, and why we enjoy experiencing fear and engaging with the dark and the macabre. I am Dr. Katie Mishler, and my postdoctoral project is Mapping Gothic Dublin, Historical and Literary Hauntings from 1820 to 1900. This work is funded by an Irish Research Council Enterprise Partnership Grant in collaboration with Molly and the UCD Centre for Cultural Analytics. This episode uses Dublin writer Joseph Sheridan Lefanu's short story, The Familiar, as a basis for its discussion, although it delves into both contemporary and historical cultural productions. The Familiar was selected as Molly's first annual Christmas ghost story, and a recording of it is available on Radio Molly, so please do give it a listen. In this first episode, I have the pleasure of speaking to horror aficionados and experts, Dr. Noreen Giffney and Brian J. Showers. So I want to thank both of you so much for your time and for joining us today. Uh, to introduce our guests, I have Dr. Noreen Giffney, who's a psychoanalytic psychotherapist and a psychosocial theorist. She is the author of the book, The Culture Breast in Psychoanalysis, Cultural Experiences and the Clinic, and the author and or editor of a number of articles and books on psychoanalysis, psychosocial studies, and critical theory. Noreen is the director of Psychoanalysis Plus, which is an international interdisciplinary initiative that brings together clinical, academic, and artistic approaches to and applications of psychoanalysis. She lives in County Donegal and is a lecturer in counseling at Ulster University in Belfast. Um, she is would also like to say that the first horror film she saw was A Nightmare on Elm Street, and she's had a keen interest in the horror genre since then. Our other guest is Brian Showers. He has written short stories, articles, and reviews for magazines such as Rue Morgue, Ghosts and Scholars, and Supernatural Tales. His short story collection, The Bleeding Horse, won the Children of the Night Award in 2008. He is the author of Literary Walking Tours of Gothic Dublin, 2006, the co-editor of Reflections in a Glass Darkly, Essays on Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu, 2011, and the editor of the literary journal The Green Book. Showers also edited Uncertainties, an anthology of contemporary fiction, and co-edited with Jim Rockhill, the Ghost Story Award-winning anthology Dreams of Shadows and Smoke. He also runs Swan River Press, which is Ireland's only publishing house dedicated to literature of the gothic, fantastic, strange, and supernatural. And the website for that is swanriverpress.ie. Although you are in what appears to be on the surface in very different fields, your work intersects with psychology, emotion, and cultural studies. So I was wondering if you could talk about what drew you to your perspective fields. So Noreen, how did you first get interested in psychoanalysis? And Brian, how did you first get interested in Gothic writing? Noreen, I might start with you. Yeah, sure. Um, so I became interested in psychoanalysis um, for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, um, I did uh, my PhD in medieval history. And um, 
my dissertation was entitled The Ages Drowned in Blood. So I've had a, I suppose I've had a long-standing interest in horror, which I've actually become more aware of, Katie, since you invited me mm-hmm. to contribute to this conversation. Um, and as part of that dissertation, what I was looking at was uh, the Mongol invasion of Christendom and the Rus principalities during the 13th century, which is now Eastern Europe and Russia. And I was looking at the reactions to this invasion. And the reactions were highly emotive because of the trauma experienced by the populations. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to read the text closely to get a really good sense of why they were reacting in the ways that they were. So I used a lot of different theories to do that. And one of the theories was psychoanalysis. So I read a lot of Sigmund Freud's work, um, but it was really when I came to read the writings of Melanie Klein uh, that I began to think about what it might be like to train um, to work clinically in psychoanalysis. Uh, because Melanie Klein's work is something that bypasses the intellectual. It's something that really hits the the reader at a visceral level. And although it may seem kind of wacky or strange when you read it intellectually, it actually makes sense at a, at a kind of a felt sense level. Um, so that was one reason I became interested. The other reason was I've always collaborated with people. Uh, I love kind of, you know, organizing events with people, editing or writing with people. It's these kind Kind of interactions and even you know the discussion that we're having today I'm really looking forward to, to this um, because that really contributes to my own thinking but over time I became aware that those kinds of interactions and experiences was something I really wanted to uh, explore more depth in a relational depth that we don't get every day but yet we do get in a clinical situation with another person. Brian what about you how did you first get interested in gothic writing? For as many times as I've been asked this question, um, I've never really been able to come up with an answer that I think is even halfway um, decent. But the way I've been putting it lately is that I was simply born this way. I think back as long as I can, and I've always had a sort of aesthetic disposition towards um, what I guess we could broadly term as horror. I mean, all the way back. For as early as my memory um, can take me. So everything that I've done since then that's related to genre is, you know, whether it's being a writer of fiction or nonfiction as a publisher, I never really wanted necessarily to do or be those things. It was more an outgrowth of my interest in this particular aesthetic mode. What might be interesting to me anyways is is it something that I've always liked? It's not something that I found or that I grew into. It's something that has always been a part of me. And I think people, not everyone, but a number of people who I know who work in the genre um, are similar in this way, is that there's a certain sort of passion um, that that fuels their interests you know we're the people that that stay up really late when when you're nine years old to to very quietly sneak into the into the living room to watch these things on television that you're not supposed to be watching or going to that particular part of the library over and over again to get these you know very specific books um i mean and it's not just it's it's not just horror or or literature either like i i rated the Bigfoot and UFO section of the public library as well. So I think it's this broader idea of, of the fantastical. Um, it's, a, it's, a, 
it's a it's an aesthetic position is the best way I can put it. I've just always had it. No, that's that's really interesting, Brian. And I do feel like asking you this question is a little bit unfair because I um, work in the field of Gothic literary studies in my academic scholarship, and I get asked this question quite a bit. And it is difficult to pinpoint what it is specifically about um, literature of horror and literature of terror, and for me specifically 19th century Irish writing that I find so compelling. Um, I think one thing for me is, I think it's really interesting what it reveals about society and what it reveals about different um, social relations, social anxieties in particular. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think it is quite difficult to think, you know, what it is that compels us to be interested in or study or engage with specific um, cultural forms. But I try to, you know, think back to myself also being a, a kid in the library section, you know, reading terrible, absolutely, I can remember some of them, just absolutely terribly written children's books that are meant to be scary. I think unfortunately the genre, it's genre is guilty of producing enormous amounts of bad writing. Yes. <laughs> Any genre. Um, one of the drawbacks. But like it's but horror in particular though I think is even even more interesting in the sense that uh, or sorry, rather liking horror is really odd because these are two incongruous ideas. These are two conflicting ideas. Like why would you like something that you're meant to be repelled by? And that's the that's always, you know, that's the second question after when do you, you know, when did you start liking horror? <laughs> Why do people like horror? Absolutely. No, and I, I hope we can delve into that question further. Um, and in relation to this, I wanted to talk a little bit about this idea of horror and emotion, because I think both of you have very interesting perspectives on this. Um, so, for instance, Maureen, in your new book, which I mentioned earlier, The Culture, Breast, and Psycho analysis, cultural experiences, and the clinic, you explore the formative influence cultural objects play in our lives. Um, so in this book's preface, you state that encounters evoke experiences and experiences evoke reactions, which in turn offer a space for reflection. In this preface, you also meditate on evocative objects, which invite us to think and feel and which facilitate self-reflection and insight. So I think both Brian and I have mentioned some of these evocative objects be genre fiction that we encountered at an early age. Um, and Brian, you also at Swan River Press recently published a volume in your anthology series, Uncertainties. And in this forage, you frame horror as an evocation of an effective response, but not necessarily one of fear. You write about how the expectations of experiencing fear when reading a piece of horror literature or watching a horror film can be limiting. And instead of focusing on fear, you use Douglas E. Winter's definition, horror is an emotion. Um, so I wonder if each of you could take a moment to discuss in further depth the relationship between horror, whether it's cinematic or literary and emotion, and how you think we interact with such works emotionally. Um, Noreen, if you want to go first. Yeah, so um, Brian, um, Katie sent me uh, the preface that you wrote uh, in advance, so it was really interesting for me to read it just before we had this conversation today, and I really like what you say 
about it's actually all, it was in the Irish Times yesterday. Yeah, I saw well. that. I saw like that. If yeah. anyone listening wants to read it, they can just go online and read it, and then put us on pause and then continue. So, I mean, in that preface, you're you're really talking about that, uh, I suppose, evocative um, nature of horror that it evokes many different, a whole range of feelings. And I suppose, in terms of horror and emotion, what I would say, because I was one of those people in the in the library as well, in the UFO section, the the science fiction and the fantasy section, and so on, that. Um, Horror is, I think, as a genre, very much uh, based on evoking feeling. It's very much about stimulating a reaction in the viewer. And it's very much about, um, in, in ways that loads of different cultural objects do this, but I think particularly horror really draws us into uh, the kind of an experience that feels very immersive and absorbing. And I think it's about really evoking not just feeling at a kind of a head level, but also we really experience it in the body. So, I mean, when there was the time when we could all go to cinema, um, I, I used to love going to cinema to see horror. So I really miss that because sitting with the audience, you know, as people are gasping or they're laughing or they're, you know, covering their eyes or whatever it might be, that kind of uh, whole body kind of experience that is um, evoked or provoked um, by horror. Um, and I think it is kind of um, very much as well. I mean, which I suppose we'll talk a bit more about later. It's it's that kind of skill that directors or writers have where they can kind of build up tension or anxiety um, so that they kind of pull it. It's quite um, tight, um, like a tight string. And it's just at that moment that it's released that uh, I think provokes that kind of crescendo uh, of, of feeling. But that's not the only feeling. I think, Brian, you really drew that out really well in your piece that there's so many we're feeling at different it's, levels. Yeah, it's, a, it's like when I was writing this thing, it's been something I've been thinking about for a very long time. And I realized that that as I was writing it, I, I don't have a background in emotional theory, which probably might have been handy. Um, so I, I kind of kept, I tried to stay in my lane a little bit, but the, you could probably apply these things to not just horror to, to, but to broader emotions. Um, I mean, there, there are just as many ways to feel love or be in love for something as there are to be scared of something as well. Since we're talking about the familiar today and this idea of, of, you know, emotions and, and even conflicting emotions. I'm sure you both know that M.R. James's phrase, a pleasing terror, is often invoked to describe this idea of, of horror that's not necessarily repellent. And you have these two sides of the phrase, pleasing and terror. And there's a phrase in, in The Familiar that, that caught my eye that pretty much nearly says that. Towards the end, where one of the servants is going into Barton's quarters, you know, the owl is 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 flapping around. And the servant says that he experiences a feeling akin to terror, yet not unmingled with curiosity. And I really liked that idea because that that kind of sums up some of these some of these this the sense that 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 you don't just have to feel um, this physical reaction, you can also have this sort of intellectual reaction, um, this curiosity, like, I, I, I should probably be running from what's behind this, this door, but I, I need to actually see what's behind it. 
And one of the problems with horror is uh, the name of the, the the article when it was printed in the, in the in the in the in the Irish Times is that didn't scare me. So this reaction that horror is meant to do this one thing, I think the perception can sometimes be that horror is meant to do one thing. Um, and I can only imagine someone reading now or listening to the familiar and and thinking to themselves, well, that was just terrible. Um, that didn't scare me at all. But I think there are some fascinating ideas in there. But I also think this kind of turns to an interesting question about the idea of... Um you know, if we look at the Gothic, we're, we're, we're kind of jumping back and forth between the 19th century and the contemporary co- time. But what now, what do you think, like, what do you both personally find terrifying? Is there a particular short story or a horror film or a type of TV show that does scare you? I know that we're, we are discussing this idea of horror not necessarily needing to evoke fear but i do think it is interesting when it does evoke fear that fear can really be tied to deeper anxieties that we have yeah um well i I think um like for me um it's not necessarily that i would find a film or a novel or a particular genre um frightening or terrifying it's more like a scene or a moment um so I'm trying I'll, I'll give you a couple of moments that I was kind of thinking about that that would terrify me um so the moment maybe in The Shining when he comes around the corner on his little tricycle and he sees the twins standing in front of him or there's a moment in a horror uh, called The Descent which I'm sure you have seen where it's the very end and all the creatures are crawling up. There's so many of them crawling up out of the hole into the light, kind of after um, the woman or I'm not sure if they're crawling after, but that's my, that's my uh, memory of it. Or Leatherface in uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, coming with the chainsaw or uh, Michael Myers, you know, coming with the knife uh, or Amityville Horror, you know, these kinds of like moments in the, or the, the scene from The Exorcist, there's a scene in The Exorcist where the, the priest, Father Maring, comes and you kind of hear the sounds of the the, 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 the the kind of the horror going on in the house and he's looking up and there's a light kind of coming out of the window. It's those kind of moments that, that would stay with. And I suppose maybe the, the reason why I would think that they, they frighten me is because they're context specific. Um, like I might have seen them when I was quite young. Um, I might have seen them maybe when I was on my own, uh, when it was you know really late at night or something like that. But the reason why um, they're meaningful for me is they stay with me. And in some ways, the whole film hangs around those um, scenes even today. It's those those examples that you mentioned too. I there a few of them are kind of to me different types of invocations of horror so i think the twins and the shining to me speaks of of an uncanniness you know there's this doubling it's a very odd um kubrick films things in a very sort of um uh, what's the word i'm looking for symmetrical sort of style i mean there's just this oddness to it whereas something like texas chainsaw massacre is a very panic based reaction um and the exorcist um kind of invokes i mean some of the most memorable horror and kind of 
plays all of these different types of, of horror invocations, I think. Um, and The Exorcist is, I think to me, I think, I think they're all scary films. These are all films that I think are scary, but they are also films that I love to engage with the ideas of. I heard you use the word uncanny, um, yeah. Brian, and Noreen, I was wondering if we could kind of pick your brain and your expertise in um, psychoanalysis and of um, Freud's writings. So the idea of the uncanny is um, it originated in Freud's work, but it is something we often use to talk about experiences of horror, horror literature and terror. And I wonder if you might talk a little bit more about that, both maybe in um, uh, clinical terms, but also in terms of um, its relation to, I guess, cultural theory and cultural studies. Yeah, sure. Um, so just with regards to the uncanny, I mean, Freud wasn't the person who first used it, um, but he did. Uh, he had a huge interest in it and wrote a very important paper. Um, and I suppose when I think about the uncanny, and it's something that, that Brian alluded to there, it is something that it's the situation that is familiar or it's ordinary. It's every day but there's something not quite right. There's something very odd or strange. And I suppose what uh, Freud was trying to articulate was that there's fear, there's distress, there's terror, but the uncanny is a very particular, um, there's a very particular texture to the feeling of the uncanny when you um, come up against it. Um, and I suppose maybe in um, psychoanalytic terms, what, what he was trying to get at as well is that this, um, it's like I often think about it, it's when you do a double take. Like, it's like, have I just seen that? And horror does that so well, you know? Um, it's kind of like, you know, uh, some, sometimes when horror does it so well that something's kind of lurking in the shadow or there's a doll where the eyes move or something like that. It's kind of, you're not quite sure whether you've seen it, but you know that you've seen something, but you, you can't register it either. Um, in kind of, I suppose, psychoanalytic terms, uh, the uncanny refers to as well the idea that there's an unconscious and the unconscious refers to an aspect of our minds which in psychoanalytic terms the belief is is that most of our minds are actually inaccessible to us so we have all these experiences we have all these encounters treasure lives um, they don't just go away they are stored in an aspect of our mind that's called the unconscious so they're in there they're all jumbled up and mixed up together we don't have access to them we can't actually just pull one out and, and kind of bring it to consciousness but it still has an impact over how we think feel and behave and with the uncanny the idea is that some of those experiences sometimes uh, they kind of pop up so that there's something that in the experience of seeing something that might terrify in a very particular way, that there is something that is being triggered in the unconscious. Now, clinically, um, I suppose this idea of the uncanny comes in uh, to a clinical kind of context in something called transference. And transference is where the patient, when they come to um, therapy, they bring their experiences with them. So they bring their story. They talk about, you know, the difficulties they're having. They talk about their childhood. They talk about their relationships. But as well as that, they bring in all those kinds of experiences which they can't articulate, which they can't call to consciousness, which come in in them in this kind of thing where they 
transfer it. They bring it in and they kind of put it on the, the therapist. So over time, they begin to relate to the therapist as if the therapist was their mother or as if the therapist was their brother or their partner or their friend or whatever it might be. So in some ways, the uncanny idea comes into the consulting room in the way in which the patient sometimes experiences this sense that this is all too familiar, but yet it's not. And there's the that feeling of not being able to um, not being able to get away from it. It's because it's in your mind. You are trying to push it out, but it's actually still in there. I think the to me when I think of the uncanny, um, it doesn't even necessarily have to be an experience of horror. So like Noreen, you you almost seem to, to about to be allude to the idea of like repetition, maybe. So like a patient could have a, um, an occurrence that they attach meaning to. Um, and this can, this can seem strange because then it, 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 or this can, this story, this idea can be used in, in horror and any sort of, um, fantastical literature because you can you can then harness this idea of a strange occurrence of repetition um having a meaning that may well be just out of grasp um and then obviously in a in a clinical setting the the idea is to sort of try and make sense of of what all this means and why you're you know why the patient is maybe um looking at things this way um you could transfer that to literature as well um and I just love it when there isn't an answer, though, when the answer is far more sinister than something mundane. But that opens up that opens up further questions of possibility. And again, we're back to we're back to the idea of, of like an intellectual engagement for me, where um, uh, any sort of you know how some people need to have an ending. They need to have an ending tied off. They need to have it explained to them. Um, I don't mind when things aren't explained. I don't mind when there are things sort of left hanging, when you still have questions. And I think really good horror, um, while on, the, on some hands it might answer some questions, but not all, um, it leaves other questions to linger. And those are the ones that you continue to think about. Um, yeah. And Brian, I, I think some of the things you're pointing out, we can relate back to Lefendu's writing and the familiar. This story does center around the idea of something from the past, something buried, a misdeed, um, a wrongdoing, guilt that um, has been pushed in the back of Barton's mind, then becoming this physically terrifying manifestation. But I also think it ties to this idea that, um, Brian, of what you're mentioning of um, indeterminacy in horror and terror. And I think we see this a lot where so there could be a plausible explanation. Um, perhaps Barton was mad. That seems to be usually questioning people's sanity seems to be one of the popular ways to um, create an inconclusive ending in uh, narratives like this. But there's also the possibility that there is a world that we don't understand, that there are demons, that there are ghosts, that they can persecute us, that they can physically take form and follow us down the streets. That's another possibility opened up by this form. And I think you're absolutely right that it is the indeterminacy. It is the lack of conclusiveness um, 
that makes these stories scary. M.R. James called it the loophole, that you have to leave the loophole there. You can't close it off entirely. But a successful story needs, a go- sorry, a successful ghost story needs to retain this, this semblance of a question mark. And Noreen, you were talking earlier about context and how the uncanny bubbles up into the, into the context of, of the normal, right? You have to have normal first. M.R. James has written, and he wrote a couple of different rules of a successful ghost story. And a number of these, I think, you can connect or you can very much see at work in the familiar. So one of them is that you need to set up first normality. So the familiar starts with with Captain Barton returning to Dublin. He's a retired man. He's he's of good social standing. He has decent marriage prospects. So Lefanu sets the stage first with everything normal, um, and that's where the uncanny makes its intrusions, little by little, as M. R. James put it. Until it, as M. R. James puts it. Until, until this, this thing um, takes full center stage, but it kind of peeks out at first. Um, and we go back to, again, what Noreen was talking about with the crescendo, um, that, that, you know, you have to build tension, and Lefanu definitely does this. I think, yeah, and I, I think that's really interesting. I mean, thinking about um, kind of the mechanisms of the ghost story, how it relates to wider constructions of uh, terror and horror in popular culture and different cultural productions. And one thing I'm wondering is in this discussion of this, um, in a minute, I want to talk a little bit about why we engage with horror so much. But when we think about the building of this crescendo um, and the different reactions that it elicits, I was wondering if we could think a minute about how these, what do these encounters with the the horrific and the terrible do to us? I mean, do they challenge us in some way? Do they make us think about new things in different ways? Do they have a revelatory effect? Can we have an epiphanic reaction to them? Um, And Noreen, uh, maybe if you could start, because I think this relates back to your idea in your work where you're thinking about cultural encounters and how these can be formative psychological experiences as well. Yeah, so um, I suppose I'm just thinking about like horror and I'm thinking about what uh, Brian, you were saying about, you know, building that kind of so-called normal kind of atmosphere, um, kind of context first. Um, and um, I'm thinking about, you know, how a lot of horror, like when I when I think about it, um, a lot of horror is actually, you know, there's the moments that, you know, build up the tension and the tension is released and it's built up again and so on. But there's also quite a long time built uh, into a film or um, a novel or whatever it might be in actually forming a relationship with the characters. That there's actually, like when I think about some of the horrors that I really enjoy, things like Nightmare on Elm Street, or I was listening to a lot of Stephen King audiobooks um, recently, uh, kind of revisited I that. I listened to Salem's Mark um, a few weeks ago. It was just, it's, it, it's, he's just incredible. Like, and I was thinking to myself, like, yeah. you know, 
like when I used to read him, like I read him about 20 years ago where I, you know, read a lot of his books and then I kind of came back to them when I was writing my book, I needed a bit of headspace. So I thought, oh, you know, I'll, I'll try a bit of Stephen King and, and I was listening to the audiobooks. And what I really noticed about Stephen King, my memory of him was, you know, things like it, you know, being quite, you know, Salem's lot, you know, being kind of creepy. But what I was really struck by is how good he is at writing dialogue how good he is at, you know, building this sense of camaraderie that, you know, a lot of emphasis in horror is on this kind of moment of being alone, you know, that like uh, Barton and the, the kind of walking along the street, he's utterly alone. It's completely dark. He's, it's all silent. But actually a lot of horror, like I think um, there are those moments, yeah, when, when, the, when the victim, inverted commas, is kind of um, put in the corner and, you know, something happens. But a lot of horror is actually about these relationships. You know, I, I think we've all talked about, you know, to, to kind of bring this conversation back to the beginning when we were all talking about being um, those kids who would go to the library and get the UFO books, the ghost books, um, these sorts of things that we've had an interest in since we were children and we still have an interest and fascination with. And I'm wondering if we could think a little bit about why what it is about us that draws us to these productions, you know, how do we find almost pleasure and being in, in experiencing this terror? And I think we've um, talked a little bit about this kind of being a, a crescendo, a physical rush, um, how it can be a little bit intellectually invigorating, but I wonder if we could think, you know, is there a reason we are as individuals fascinated with these stories, but also culturally invested in these stories because I, I know that I'm sure we're all aware that there's a huge true crime renaissance going on here. Um, I listen to true crime podcasts sometimes to relax. I the Exorcist is my comfort film. Why do you think that is? <laughs> For the same reason that that Noreen wanted to relax by listening to a Stephen King audiobook and for some reason thought that would be a good idea. It was great. I don't know why that is. I don't I don't know if I would want to question why that is. Um, some things are better left a, a good solid mystery, um, which I know is dodging the <laughs> dodging the question. What, um, what do you think? Maybe I'll talk a bit, Maybe I'll talk about it, a little bit about that. Yeah. And hopefully, it won't, <laughs> hopefully it won't ruin it. It just certainly doesn't ruin it for me. Um, when mm -hmm. I when I when I think about it in in kind of maybe the, some of the the intellectual or the clinical terms. Of course. Um, so I suppose one reason we're drawn to it, as, as we've been talking about, is we enjoy it, right? So at that level, it's entertaining, it's enjoyable, it gives us uh, maybe a release, you know. Um, we can, maybe if we're feeling a bit tense uh, or we're feeling a bit under pressure, it is relaxing sometimes to actually have that kind of, it's almost like a roller coaster, you know? So that's at one level. At another level, um, and I'm thinking more now about slashers, uh, in particular, but at another level, when I think about horror, um, you know, we get to experience maybe at a, at a deeper level, we get to experience um, a certain amount of masochism. There's a pleasure in, you know, being afraid. There's a pleasure in seeing uh, fear and identifying with the fear uh, at that level. There's also a sadistic pleasure. So, um, you know, if you think about a slasher, 
um, you know, the the kind of bogeyman comes a, a, around. It's usually a, a bogeyman or some kind of monstrous being coming around, killing people. And then, you know, whether it's the final girl, I know there's been, you know, kind of the genre has played around with this idea now, but whether it's a kind of a woman then who takes vengeance or revenge for all the wrongs that have been done to her, um, we can, you know, identify uh, with, uh, you know, her going out then and just, you know, plowing through um, those who have done wrong to her. So there's a sadistic pleasure. But at another level, unconsciously, um, you know, these objects that we engage with, these horrors, um, uh, I suppose they're objects outside of us. But what they do unconsciously um, is that when we're experiencing things sometimes, and it doesn't necessarily have to be fear. It could be any type of emotion. It might be, uh, it might be love. It might be, um, I don't know, it, it, it could be any emotion, envy, jealousy, any of those kinds of things. If we find it difficult to manage it, we, in our minds, have defense mechanisms. So we have these psychological defense mechanisms that basically hold our minds together. And what these do essentially is they facilitate us um, moving experiences around and sometimes pushing things out of our minds so that we can get on with our day. We all have them. But in certain circumstances, um, particularly where there's trauma involved, but with any circumstance where it might be very difficult or distressing, these defences will come in. And there's lots of different ones. I won't even name them, but they're, they're, there's lots of different ones. And basically what can happen is it, or maybe I will name some, it, the experience becomes what we call split off from our minds, which basically means that it's pushed out of the mind. It's then um, evacuated, so it's it's literally pushed out of the, the mind and it's projected onto another object, which is outside of ourselves. So sometimes that's another person. So, you know, if we think about paranoia, sometimes that that fear of the other person, sometimes there's a genuine fear because the other person should be feared. But sometimes it's actually something within ourselves that we see in somebody else rather than seeing in ourselves. So at a deeper level, uh, sometimes these objects actually facilitate us getting in touch with experiences that might actually be quite difficult um, otherwise. And maybe maybe just to end on, on this, I don't know if either of you have seen a film called The Act of Killing. The Act of Killing is a documentary about um, mass killings in Indonesia. And I did an event on this before because it was one of these films I saw Basically, what it was is that the the people responsible for the killings were invited by the director to um, tell their story, to talk about you know because they've they've never been brought to justice. They are in you know they're in positions. They rule. Uh, uh, they're still in ruling positions in Indonesia, and instead of talking about their story, they wanted to act it. They wanted to play it. They wanted to set up a play and they played it out. And they basically went through some of these killings. They talked about them in huge detail and they acted them out, and it was really horrifying to see it, like much more horrifying than any fiction that I've seen. And I think it's because with the fiction, there's something about that tension and release, tension and release, and then you get up and you can leave the cinema and you can leave it there. But there's something about that um, that documentary that just would not allow, it wouldn't function in the same way that these objects sometimes allow us to put an experience on it and to leave it there and to to walk away um there's there's a a fascinating book that i read a couple of decades ago now and i I pick it up again every once in a while 
It's called The Philosophy of Horror by Noel Carroll. It's a, it's fairly well invoked in academic circles. Um, and I know a lot of people have problems with it, but, but he, he, he uses this term art horror to differentiate from horror horror. And the thinking is, is that if you're in a film and, or sorry, if you're in a, if, like say if you're in a cinema and Leatherface, you know, is going at it with a chainsaw, your instinct isn't to get up and flee the cinema. Uh, I mean, some people might, but you know, on a very basic level, um, people don't flee. That's not actual horror. They're not actu- actually scared. So what he posits is is this different emotion that he calls art horror. And again, that that that's that was sort of at the back of my mind when I read that that Lefanu bit where it's where he wrote akin to terror, akin to terror, but not terror. And that to me is almost the same, you know, playing with the same sort of idea or even a pleasing terror where M.R. James is, is saying it's, it's terror, but it's not quite terror. It's something a little different. So the idea is, is that what we're experiencing isn't necessarily fear in the, in the, in the sort of primal, you know, in the jungle fight or flight sense of the word but that we're feeling something that is akin to that that's identified as being similar to that um why we like it um we like to feel things i think i think we like to feel things i think humans are built to experience and feel things the whole range no i I think both of you have made really really interesting points and i i've always thought um with the true crime phenomenon, I have some complicated feelings about it because I don't always think it is the most ethical, you know, particularly when it's telling stories about people who have survivors or people in their families who are still alive, or even when there's stories that are told about people who are still alive in particular, I find that a little uncomfortable. But I I do think one thing that um, the reason it is perhaps so powerful to women is because we live in a society where we are told to be constantly afraid and told to be constantly aware of our surroundings, being careful at night and these sorts of things. And I've always thought it is a way to kind of vicariously experience this fear in a way that's controlled and contained. And one thing that I thought was really interesting that you said, Noreen, is you mentioned something about, um, and I, I think this ties to something you said, Brian, about how we're humans and we wanted to feel emotions. And I'd never really thought about the way that I would view, let's say, a rom-com. Um, let's say, you know, I, I love Notting Hill. That's one of my relaxing movies. Um, watching it, I get to kind of vicariously experience these two people falling in love. And for some reason, I never really connected that with the same thing with um, a kind of vicarious experience we have when I, you know, am reading a scary story or watching a horror film. I guess because one is with an emotion that we associate with positive feelings, and the other one is something that, you know, we don't want these things to happen to us. We don't want these things to happen to our families. We associate them with our greatest and darkest fears. And I think maybe that's why I always had a disconnect between the two. But now after hearing both of you speak, I've, I've, I think I've reconciled them both. <laughs> well, if you think about the if you think about the fact that we live at the moment we're in the middle of a pandemic 
um, and how popular you know certain movies are like Contagion and uh, or The Stand. I have to say, Brian, I my the, I was in the middle of listening to the Stephen King. I was going through all the Stephen Kings. I was loving them, you know, and then I started have you listening read to novel? this. I have actually, yeah, I have. Yeah, um, I've just started it. I'm loving yeah. it. Sorry. I, it's called I, Later, I, yeah. I listened listen to the, um, I was listening, I started actually listening to The Stand around the time of, you know, all the first reports of the pandemic and I actually couldn't continue. And I couldn't continue because I knew, having listened to all the other things, that he was just so good at evoking the atmosphere. It was almost like I didn't want to know what was going to happen. But these things, like these films are really popular at the moment, or like there's been a film, I don't know if you have seen it, called Songbird, which is about, uh, it's it's COVID-19 set in 2024. It's been, you know, critiqued because it's seen as very distasteful because we're in the middle of the pandemic. But it's very popular like they're all very popular but if you think about like say there's there's lots of reasons why we're drawn to things but like at the moment like we're being told i know things are opening up a bit more but we're being told to kind of keep our distance from other people kind of fear other people because we don't know if they have something that we might get and what might happen to us what might happen to people in our lives so there's kind of like a free floating anxiety for a lot of people I'm not saying everybody feels it, some people don't but there's a free floating anxiety but if you watch a film like contagion or you watch a film like songbird or whatever there's somewhere to put the anxiety for an hour and a half you can you know see it it ravages through the community but then at the end because of um a lot of movies brian i agree with you about horror leaving kind of questions unanswered but a lot of movies do actually they close down at the end. They offer the reader some kind of hope and in inverted commas, and uh, or not the reader, the viewer. Um, so, so there's something also very, um, I don't know. There's there's something containing. I would call it watching these movies at the at the current time. And that brings this episode of the Dublin Gothic podcast to a close. I'd like to thank both Dr. Noreen Giffney and Brian J. Showers for taking the time to speak to me and for sharing their insights and expertise. I'm Dr. Katie Mishler, and my postdoctoral project is Mapping Gothic Dublin, Historical and Literary Hauntings from 1820 to 1900, and my project is funded by the Irish Research Council. This podcast was produced by Ian Dumphy and Benedict Schlepper Connolly with Ian Dumphy on Sound. For more from Radio Molly, visit radio.molly.ie.